I haven't met a developer yet who just outright doesn't care whether their software is secure or not. Every developer I've ever met has some level of pride in the in the code that they write. And if they knew that somebody was breaking their code and making it do evil things that they never intended, they generally don't like that. So use that motivation and enable them to, hey, here's how in your daily life, just using your same IDEs, using your same development approach, you can write code in a slightly different way that makes you more secure today than you were yesterday. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're all safe and sound wherever you may be in the world. It's great to have you here. So today, I'm really thrilled to bring on uh, my guest today. This is Alyssa Miller. How are you doing, Alyssa? I am doing wonderful. How are you? Oh, living the dream. Well, not the dream. Living some version of the dream. I mean, nightmares are dreams, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. So I'm really excited to have you on. um, t- to talk about the, the the recent report that came out from Sneak, which we'll get into in a moment. But um, I want to first of all go through the rap sheet because you've got a, a really interesting career here. Uh, you were a, um, a delivery manager for uh, for the BT Advise Assure Security Practice, which was responsible for coordinating uh, and managing the delivery of ethical hacking and professional services engagements. You went on to be a practice manager in the software security group for Optiv. Uh, you were head of program services and practice leader for Aspect Security. Um, um, a little bit later on, you were the head of information security solutions uh, for CDW. Um, and then, um, but but today, I think what most people will know you by is that you're an application security advocate at Sneak, uh, which I think is really neat. So uh, you certainly have you certainly have your background very firmly in place when it comes to security, and. Um, so um, a, a friend of mine recently reached out to me, uh, Sharon Zitman, Zitzman from, uh, from Sneak, and said, you should totally get Alyssa on the show about the state of open source security report that you published recently, right? Which I think is really interesting. I went and took a look at it. I'm not going to claim that I, I understood everything in the report because I'm not a security person, <laughs> uh, but I did my best. I tried my hardest, but I think there's loads of really interesting material I want to get into today. So, so just to kind of jumpstart things, can you give us a little bit of background around just how this report came into into fruition, right? Because this is not the first one that Sneak has published, right? Right. Yeah, I think this is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's the third or the fourth uh, annual report. And it, it's kind of our flagship product, or project, excuse me. Um, you know, obviously, Sneak is uh, a software vendor. You know, we sell developer tools to make software more secure. But a lot of what we like to do is to really give back to the open source community that we have grown as a part of. I mean, that the everything that Sneak does is really centered around open source security. And when we think about open source software in terms of software development and package maintainers and things like this, uh, there's a lot of differing opinions, I'll say in the marketplace about whether or not you can trust open source, whether or not open source is more secure than commercial software. Um, does open source have a place in, uh, you know, commercial, large commercial organizations when they're developing software, all these things, there's a lot of different information out there, but no one really seems to have a clear idea of what are the risks or how safe is it? Yeah. The actual data, right? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so the state of open source security report is really our attempt to shed some light on what is the current security posture within the open source community? What are the risks? Because anyone who's developing software understands that the modern ecosystems that we're developing software in, you really can't get away from open source. So organizations who think, gee, we're just going to outlaw the use of open source. Yeah, a rude awakening for most of them when they find out that their developers are introducing new dependencies every day. And so, um, you know, so what we do is we take a, a combination of data from a number of places. So certainly we go out to the big three as far as repos, GitHub, GitLab, um, Bitbucket, and we're able to pull a lot of their publicly available data. Um, 
we of course leverage data that we gather at Sneak. We have our our vulnerability database, which includes all the CVEs that we've opened, plus all of uh, the CVEs and other vulnerabilities that are known throughout the the community. Um, we also aggregate data from scans that other our customers, our users, et cetera, have done with Sneak. So they've run Sneak against their projects, and we're able to aggregate that data at a level that we can use that in a report like this. And then finally, um, we do a survey every year, and we open that survey up to the community at large, um, not just Sneak customers or users. Obviously, we want a broader range. And so, you know, we get that out to people at all levels of the organization, all roles within the organization, and all of that data comes together into the report that you have in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really interesting report because one of the things that's always fascinated me about open source is is that kind of that that chain of dependencies uh, of which often it's a multiple multiple streams of of open source projects that are glued together. You know, one of the things that you touched on in the report was uh, well, actually, before I get to that, I, I want to just ask a general question before we get into some of the numbers. Sure. You mentioned about kind of like some views when it comes to open source. Um, Obviously, the the perspectives on open source are changing every year because it's growing and it's changing in different ways. Throughout the course of your career, how have you seen the the view of open source change, and especially um, with with regards to security? You know, because obviously, it, it you know it's becoming more prevalent. It's it's tapping into more and more industries, and I get I get the impression that the the, the concept of open source is becoming more comfortably understood by more organizations, but the security element of it is still. I think an area where people either don't have a lot of knowledge or they're they're just not entirely sure to think about it. What's your kind of take on that? Yeah, I mean, so if I go back to my roots, which start as a you know a developer in financial technologies, um, you know, back then open source is basically Linux. I mean, that was right. that was what we knew <laughs> of open source. There wasn't we didn't have all these really cool ecosystems and things where you could just go out and get packages and stuff. I mean, I was developing in C++ and very old nowadays versions of Java where you didn't have that ability to go out and, hey, I'll just grab this package and it'll have all this functionality for me. You know, at best, Microsoft had some of that stuff in in Visual C++ and whatever that you could pull in. So there, you know, I, I start with that infancy of open source and that that's kind of how we looked at it. And for the longest time, open source was just like compiled software. We didn't really think about open source in terms of components we could add to our own software. And, you know, so over time, we've seen that come to fruition. And again, we've seen from the developer community in particular that that very wide range adoption of it. And from a security perspective, I think there's always been a fear of the unknown. Never really, other than... Linux operating systems and things like that. We've 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 had a lot of diametrically opposed opinions on this. Like some people, there's the the constant debate of, um, you know, well, open source is more secure because everybody can look at it. It's open. You can tell what's in it. Whereas proprietary software, you, you you're not able to analyze it at the same level, and um, you know, so you, you, we've seen those challenges evolve. And it's grown. For the longest time, organizations would stand up and they would write policies on open source software and, and basically, in many cases, just outright banning it. Well, we've, as I mentioned before, we're realizing that's not really realistic now either. And so the challenge now is it's about knowing what we have and knowing what's vulnerable how do we measure whether packages are trustworthy or not? And this can go beyond security, right? I mean, even from just a developer perspective, if you're picking a dependency to pull in, how do you know whether project A or project B is the better one to introduce to your software, which, you know, and you can look at a myriad of things to try to figure that out. How often is it updated and how many pull requests or issues are outstanding, all those kinds of things. And so I think, we're seeing more attention around that and the whole concept of software supply chain security. Yeah. Like you mentioned the dependency tree. How do I know I, I add one dependency? How do I know what dependencies that has in turn and how many other dependencies under that get added as well? 
and what are all those dependencies and how do I track all that? It's funny you should say that. You know, it reminds me of a tweet that Kelsey Hightower um, put out a couple of months ago where he said, so you want to roll your own application platform. All you need is Linux, Docker, Kubernetes, Istio, Prometheus, Fluentd, Grafana. I know exactly you know. that tweet. And, it's, uh, yes. and, it, and it kind of makes the point, right, that it be, and all of this is kind of interconnecting and it becomes incredibly complicated. One of the things that struck me in the report was was that it says that over 70% of the participants said that they used Node, uh, that they use Node and, and JavaScript as their primary development ecosystem, uh, which is uh, not massively surprising, I think, uh, to probably to a lot of people familiar with open source and tech, but also that the majority of the open source vulnerabilities continued to be discovered in, in indirect dependencies with 86% of those being in NPM. Now, NPM is a story in itself <laughs> uh, for many different reasons, uh, technical and cultural. But I'm curious about your thoughts on that because to your point earlier that, you know, if you're building an application, the NPM ecosystem is so broad that it can be easy to just kind of go and and, and grab an NPM module and just start using it and building with it. Um, but then that is arguably going to increase the, the risk of, of, your, of your security kind of becoming compromised in some kind of way. What's your take on both the growth of, of, of JavaScript and JavaScript platforms, as well as some of these seemingly significant security issues there as well? Yeah, so there's, there's no doubt, first of all, NPM is growing at an exceptional rate. And we actually looked at that in the report too. And we look at you know, last year, I think NPM added almost 300,000 new packages over the course of the year. Yikes. This year, it's well over that. It's at almost 350,000 that they added. And so you look at that alone and you realize just how much NPM continues to grow. It's extremely popular. And then there is this culture within NPM in particular of leveraging open source and leveraging public packages and at a granular level like we don't see anywhere else um you know it's I, I another tweet i can think of somebody was it was actually a whole thread somebody was talking about a package that they had downloaded looked like it would be something very simple right like i i, I think it was something like is a string or something like that it was something blindingly easy that okay you would think Okay, yeah, no problem. Well, it turns out is a string has a has a dependency on another package called is not a string. <laughs> so you literally had a package that determined if something was a was not a string and then somebody else built another package on top of that that just literally it was like three lines of code cuz it was just, you know, return not is not a string and <laughs> that was the entire package. But I mean, it's, it's an extreme example, but we do see a lot of that within NPM in particular. And I think it's why we see so many packages, you know, whereas you go into some of the other ecosystems, like if you look at like Python, for instance, you go and you download a Python package, it's generally got a lot of functions, a lot of classes in it. You know, there's all the different objects that are defined and various methods that you can leverage. You, know, it, you don't see a lot of Python packages that are like one method and that's it. No, no, yeah. It's kind of less is more, but well, fewer packages is more, right? Because um, uh, that's the thing that strikes me about NPM is that there's so much out there, but it, it's kind of the same as, uh, it reminds me of almost like a, an app store for like the Google app store or the, or the Apple app store. In the earlier days, there were a smaller number of higher quality packages. And now you've just got, you know, fart apps and whatever else clogging the thing up. I wonder if that's something similar applies to NPM, that it's just, it's all about kind of maintaining the right level of quality, right? Oh, for sure. And yeah, I mean, it's, you, you look at just, how do you even measure that quality, right? And we have everybody contributing. And of course, you, you, there's no way to to really look at one package versus the other and say, is this, as similar as you know to this other one so how do we merge the two or something like that you know I mean, like you think about the app store uh, analogy you were just using and think about the apple app store and how much they curate that content they used to do more but they're not as tight on it now anymore as they used to be but that was one of the things that people loved about the apple app store was at least you knew there they didn't have much in the way of uh, duplicate functionality now they took it to the other extreme people got upset because 
you know, if there was any similarity at all, they wouldn't allow it. And then, well, hey, I, want, I like how that works better. Why can't I have that app in there? And um, so I think you, you do get a lot of that with NPM. And a lot of that is just cultural to that ecosystem, right? It's, it's very much, it, it's, I, again, thinking back to my roots as a developer too many years ago to count, it, it, it's what we saw as almost the utopia of, at the time, the buzzword was reusability. You know, we wanted to be able to reuse the things we did. So we we started doing object-oriented. We started creating classes. And Microsoft gave us this cool thing with DLLs. And we could do that. And before we knew it, we had web services. We're making it even easier. But NPM gives us that at the code level in a way that, you know, everybody can share it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one thing, one thing that struck me... Um that was interesting in the report and i forget the exact quote but it, it basically said if i recall correctly that um that very few organizations have programs in place that are you know creating that kind of shared responsibility across developers and ops and 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 security folks you know dev devsecops as it's commonly known um <laughs> and um you know, I'm curious how what your take is on how an organization organization would do that. So, you know, this podcast like attracts a pretty broad variety of listeners, right? There's people who are technical in nature, who will be very interested in this talking about NPM, and there's going to be people who will be like, "I don't care about NPM. What I care about is how do I get my team to talk to each other, <laughs> right? <laughs> and make my software more secure, make my application more secure." What do you think yeah. needs to happen to do that? Like to actually make that happen? Like, what what's the balance? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of good programs. And you mentioned that, and I'm going to just backtrack for a second. And what was really cool that we did see this year is we at least saw a growth toward that attitude of shared responsibility. Like we asked that question last year and about the same number, I think it was 83% said developers should be you know, in that responsibility chain. And great. Yeah, that's what you would expect to see. But then we, we looked at like security, I think was 24 five percent and ops they twenty one percent and then you start to wonder well okay what what's going on here so this year we at least saw those two come up like operations came up to thirty five percent security came up to fifty five percent and so we're starting to see like okay we're starting to get it that all three of these um you know groups or I, I just call them disciplines need to be involved in this. But building that, it, it needs to be a culture. And of course, anytime you're going to talk about how do we culturally do this, it, it becomes difficult. And so, you know, some tangible things that I talk about with different users, different customers, just people in the community is one of the big ones is just this idea of a, a security champions program or security mavens. Sometimes people refer to them. That's not a new concept that's that's a concept that has been shared and discussed in, in a lot of different places. You mentioned back when I was at Aspect Security, you know, that was something we regularly worked with our customers to implement things like that. And, but it, it's so crucial because what you do is you establish this accountability within the development team for security. And suddenly, not only have you augmented your security staff, but you've You've created this level of accountability there that says, hey, yeah, we are members of the development community, but we're responsible for making sure the software is going to be secure. And it's our job to make sure that our peers in the development team are doing the same. And where I really like to see those go then is because you think about it, especially in a large organization where you've got lots of different development teams. And so you may have these security champions defined in each of these various development groups who might be working with different software languages and everything else. The organizations who do the best with this program are the ones that create like a, a, a basically a community within their organization that is the security champions community where, you know, now they interface with security teams, they interface with each other. And that's the real key. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it's kind of cross-functional in nature, right? These people are kind of For dipping sure. in. Right. Okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And so another, you know, kind of an offshoot from that, because you mentioned a cross-functional thing, a great segue, by the way. Um, that's another thing that, okay, even if we can't do full-on security champions, what about just bringing the day-to-day -day, uh, tactical roles 
of these individuals together. So having security folks attend your standups. Are they in your sprint planning meetings? Are they hearing what's coming up? Are they there to share their perspectives, to help prioritize different user stories that are being discussed? Um, you know, and you can do the same thing with the ops folks. They should definitely be in there and understand what's coming their way. Hey, we're going to launch this whole new microservices architecture and we're going to need all these containers. Yeah, it would probably be really good to have the ops folks in that conversation pretty early on. Yeah. It seems like part of the challenge here as well is, because I agree with everything you're saying, like it seems like, first of all, bridging these teams and um, and putting in place workflow and connective tissue to make sure that, you know, you don't just have a a black box which is full of developers who that does work, and then there's a black box that's full of um, ops folks, and then a black box that's full of security engineers, um, that you're kind of commingling these different disciplines together. But I also wonder whether part of the challenge here is, and I'm putting myself into my shoes when I've been involved in open source projects and when I was writing terrible code years ago, <laughs> is that I, I get the impression that culturally there is kind of a difference between what I would describe as being hackers and maintainers, right? There's people who love writing new software, writing new features, um, doing new things. And then there's people who are just fundamentally, intrinsically motivated by kind of maintenance and security and rigor and, you know, building something that's, that's, um, that, that you can put into production in a, in, in a significant way. So the, the hacker side are kind of, they enjoy the feature development side, but they, they feel like the maintenance side is a bit of a chore. Um, and I wonder whether part of the challenge here is for a typical developer, and there is of course no typical developer, so I'm, I'm making a broad sweeping <laughs> statement that they're, intrinsic motivation is going to be different to the intrinsic motivation of a security engineer. But it strikes me that part of making a more secure technology landscape is helping everybody to play a part and more responsibility in each other's world. So when you're writing code, that you're writing it in the most secure way that you can write it and paying more of an interest in the security landscape. What do you think about those cultural divides and how you bridge those as well? Because that bridging culture is always, you know, bloody difficult. <laughs> oh, for sure. And and honestly, that's where, again, the, the start of it is just getting these people interacting, right? right because right. that interaction creates empathy. One of my favorite topics that comes up in our happy Twitter universe, um, I've seen so many threads and I respond to them, you know, what's one thing that's missing in security? And my answer every time is empathy. Like, uh, just understanding what is the world of a developer really like? And what are their motivations? What are the things that frustrate them? And if you can't understand that, you can't really effectively do a whole lot to interact and to interface with them and to help them get better because you're just for far too long security has been focused on this idea of we're that gate right we're gonna we're the ones that are gonna say no that software can't go to production because it's got too many security vulnerabilities in it or you know you you thou must do these things before you can promote code and you know, that's that's so wildly ineffective. And instead, when you think about it for how do I integrate myself? So this is how I, if you can kind of visualize one of those um, kind of those line charts that we draw of the um, the different phases of a development pipeline or, you know, DevOps, we always do the infinity loop thing, right? And you've got all the phases in there. And the way security has always looked at it, even well after DevOps was like really starting to take hold, security people would look at that and they'd say, we're going to insert security between these two and between these two and between these two. Well, you're creating those gates. And the, the gates create this long feedback loop and they're, they become problematic in every way imaginable. And ultimately, it just... It, it causes them to get circumvented because this gate takes too long. We've got to get to production. We've got this deadline for customer X, Y, or Z. And so it's, you, you know, as a security person, you're going to lose that battle every single time. So let's just avoid the battle. And so instead of putting those gates between those phases, 
how do we do something with security inside that phase? Like, how do we just make security part and parcel to what they're doing? So we know developers use repos. We know when developers are comfortable that they've reached a point that they've got code that they want to hold on to, they're going to commit that code to the repo. So why aren't we doing security when they do that commit? That's part of their everyday process. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like, you know, the, the, the primary interaction between developers is pull requests, right? Is, is people are submitting yeah. pull requests with code that integrating the security piece into that, which I think is largely happening in many cases with, uh, well, it's not security, it's a form of security, I guess, is with automated testing. But um, mm-hmm. but I, I agree with you. And what, what do you think the the kind of the role of education is here? Because, um, you know, it reminds me a little bit of, I think what you're talking about here is any kind of gating function, I think, is often seen with a little bit of disdain. It's like, for example, if you yes. write if you write an article for a magazine, the editorial process is the cumbersome bit. If you write a book, the editorial process is the cumbersome bit. <laughs> um, you know, it's. But if you if you teach the the writer to just write better content, to write better sentences and grammar and more crisply and clearly communicate, then the editorial process becomes easier because. The, con- the original content is better. So it strikes me that in accomplishing the, you know, the, the world that you're, you're talking about, which I agree with, it's going to require developers just learning a lot more about a topic that they may just be not as quite so intrinsically interested in. Do you have a thought about how you can do that in a way that is going to be interesting and exciting to developers? Yeah, so it's what I use the term frictionless enablement. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to enable developers to take on that more of that security responsibility that we're all saying they own, okay? But how do you do that in a way that creates a more frictionless environment for them? So if I create a, a, a gate, like you mentioned, that is generally the thing they're going to have the largest disdain for because it's the thing that's going to slow them down. It's the exactly, thing that's yeah. going to make life difficult for them. And developers understand this. I mean, coming from a developer background, believe me, for years I understood <laughs> that security were the no people. And, you know, that that was right. the way we approached it. And so when you give developers education and capability to do the security thing that you want them to do, and now they realize that by doing that, that eliminates the gates, that's what gets them excited because, oh, now I, I haven't met a developer yet who just outright doesn't care whether their software is secure or not. Most Every developer I've ever met has some level of pride in the, co- in the code that they write. And if they knew that somebody was breaking their code and making it do evil things that they never intended, they generally don't like that. So use that motivation and enable them to, hey, here's how... In your daily life, just using your same IDEs, using your same development approach, you can write code in a slightly different way that makes you more secure today than you were yesterday. And then, and then just focus it on continuous improvement. That's the other key. We get so wrapped up a lot of times when we think about secure code and secure software that we've got to find all the vulnerabilities and we've got to fix them all. And we've got to make sure that our software is vulnerability free. That's a wonderful utopia. Well, it, it also strikes me as well that um, is just kind of involving developers in the process of figuring this stuff out, right? Like, you know, when when you have a group that basically decides, okay, they say to the other group, we're now going to operate in this way, and you're just going to have to take the lumps. Um, that's really yes. frustrating. So it strikes me that part of that, one element of this would be understanding the development workflow more deeply and then saying like what what is it that you find frustrating about this like how do we accomplish better security more inline security in a way that's more natural to your workflow instead of like you said the the blunt force way of doing this is with gates yeah so there's been uh, in recent years there's been a lot of focus and chatter on bug bounty programs you know i had um mm-hmm. martin mikos the ceo of uh, hacker one 
on yep. on on this podcast. And I think it's a really interesting principle. And part of the reason for that is that the argument is that it allows you to, instead of just having, you know, your security engineers and your team, you've got this whole community of security engineers out there that can help you. What's your take on bug bounty programs in general, but also, you know, applied specifically to open source and what you've what you've been seeing from the results of the report? So bug bounty programs are one of those things that can be a very good tool. It can also be a very abused tool. And in mm. fact, you mentioned Martin. Martin and I have had a couple, couple of skirmishes. Shall we say slightly heated conversations about this? Um, just because sometimes hacker one's marketing tends to shade to you can use a bug bounty program to relate to replace all your pen testing. You know, now they don't come right out and say that, but it gets close, and that's the conversation you know, Martin and I have had on a couple of occasions, but, um, you know, where it is good is, is it does provide that additional layer of, Hey, you know, we know we cannot possibly find everything that we're going to find in our development or in our delivery pipeline. There's, there's going to be vulnerabilities that are going to get through for one reason or another. Either we've streamline the main things too efficient that they're missing elements or whatever. So yeah, having that ability and encouraging people to, uh, to, um, do that research for you under the rules that you set. Um, if it's a well-constructed bug brownie program and obviously groups like hacker one bug crowd, these different organizations that provide that as a service can help you with that. And there's a lot of, um, you know, I think of like Luda Security run by um, uh, Katie Masiri and what what she does. I mean, she built the first bug bounty program at Microsoft for crying out loud. And right. so, you know, there are people that can help you do this and do this effectively. And I can't stress enough how important it is to work with somebody like that, To whether it's Katie, whether it's, you know, someone in Martin's organization, whoever, just to really understand and prepare yourself as an organization. So it, it's great at an organizational level where it doesn't really help us as much, at least not directly as an open source, because I don't know many open source maintainers who are putting bounties out there on their software because most of them aren't making money. It, it's I was going to say source. they need the cash, right? And there's been, there's, there's, there, I know there's programs out there, like I forget that there is something that HackerOne's involved in the... Uh, where basically it's a, it's like a pool of donations that goes towards it. But as a general rule, I think you're right. Like it generally hasn't scaled out as well, right? It, it's infancy right now. What actually is really nice that we are seeing, um, there's a number of universities around the globe who have programs that are focused on this. And it's really cool because it fills two really important needs. One, it, it's addressing that issue of security and open source. So um, I just talked to somebody, it was uh, one of, a researcher who we've got a number of, we've received a number of bug reports from, and we've opened CVEs on his behalf. Uh, he's at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, I believe. And they, their SEC lab. And so they took like an entire month where they just focused on vulnerabilities in Node.js. And specifically, he was working on... Um, uh, regex denial of service vulnerabilities or redos. And that was his sole focus. So he's going through packages and he's, he's looking for this. He's using different tools and whatever. So one is helping secure the open source community. But the other thing it's doing is it's giving these, in this case, a graduate student real life experience that can now help them get into a security role in the, you know, in an organization somewhere, which we hear all the stories about talent shortage and security. And then the flip side of it, we hear that entry level people can't find jobs in security. And so this kind of helps address that because now you've got people coming into the workforce who've actually done vulnerability research. They've got experience doing this. So now putting them into, you know, whether it's your pen testing team or your threat intelligence team or whatever, they've got real life security skills that they've demonstrated in a meaningful way. So I think I like that approach. I would love to see more of it. Um, I think it's a little problematic to necessarily rely on 
the uh, secondary educational institutions to do that for us alone. Mm, mm, mm. But, but it's great that that's something that's available to us. Yeah, absolutely. And in kind of uh, dovetail into that, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about <clears throat> the sustainability of open source. And now this is a huge topic and it comes down to funding and all kinds of different elements. But what what's your take on, you know, what what we need to do more broadly in the open source world with open source projects to improve the overall security situation. So, you know, for example, it said in the report that new vulnerabilities were down almost 20% across the most popular ecosystems in, in 2019, which is, which is great. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. is, do you think that's accidental? Do you think that's intentional? Do you think we're heading, are there there trends forming that's influencing the fact that those vulnerabilities are going down? And what else do you think needs to happen to build a more sustainable security landscape in open source? So I look at that one with a lot of cautious optimism. And I think that's, <laughs> right. if you, re- and as you read the report, you, you'll see that too, that that's kind of the way I bring it up in there. It, it, it's a promising trend. Like if, if we start to see that continue over a couple of years and we do see a downward trend line, yeah, then maybe, maybe that's a good sign that we've, we've started to really make some impact in terms of just security and secure program awareness within the the developer community. Maybe that's happening. Maybe we're getting better integration of security people. Maybe security people are doing a better job of educating in the developer communities, in the ops communities. But it could also be that maybe things are shifting. Maybe more vulnerabilities are being focused in containers. Maybe um, it, it the higher level, the high profile packages, the ones that have, that are very popular, that have lots of projects that uh, they're being included in, maybe those are secure now because they've been put through so much scrutiny that that's driven down the overall number. But maybe there's those younger packages that people are still using that aren't as well refined. And we're going to slowly, as researchers become aware of them and start looking for vulnerabilities and those we're going to start finding more and more. It's a hard thing to say, Um, you know, and so it's a trend I watch definitely with, like I said, cautious optimism. I'd like to see that. Um, It's definitely the, the route we want to see things moving. I just have been in the security space way too long to... To look at one year's worth of trend information and say, "Hey, hey get, look, get your hopes up." Because um, that's usually you. when next year we'll have three times as many um, or something horrible. So, and if there's young people listening to this and you're at the, right at the beginning of your career, maybe you're still at school. This, everybody, is the benefit of experience. Is <laughs> being able to <laughs> right. Like, right. Having having made a few mistakes, maybe in the past, you know. Right. Right. I mean, one thing that was 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 touched on in the report as well was um, uh, the role of Linux distributions. Um, so I, mm-hmm. again, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but uh, if I recall that the um, the overall level of security issue vulnerability issues in Debian declined, which is good, but that was very different to some of the other distros such as SUSE, OpenSUSE, and uh, and Fedora. Now. I, I, you know, I used to work at Canonical. I used to work on Ubuntu, so this is somewhat mm-hmm. close to my heart. And one of the things that I have very fond memories of as a really interesting challenge in working at Canonical was, you know, these Linux distributions are fundamentally taking upstream software from other projects, um, modifying it to package it and to make sure it integrates neatly into the system, and then. Um, delivering it to a set of users, right? And when there would be a security issue or when there would be a bug, it created this really complex situation where should that bug be fixed in, like, does that bug or is that security issue in the downstream packaging of that software? Um, And that's the scope of it. Or is it an upstream issue? And then therefore, do you need to defer those upstream bug fixes or security issues to the upstream project? And there was very, certainly when I was there, there was very poor communication between the upstreams and the downstreams at that level. We actually tried to create, um, you know, linking bugs between the upstream bug trackers and the downstream bug trackers. But it creates this really awkward situation where you've got this software that exists in kind of two flavors. Um, 
what's your take on on what's happening in the Linux distribution world in that in that way? And what do you think is the responsibility of Linux distributors in when they identify these these vulnerabilities? Do you think they should be focusing on fixing them, even if they're in an upstream package that's kind of unofficial in their repos? Or do you think they should be just deferring them to the upstream project itself? So whew, you, you asked the tough questions. I like this one. Um, <laughs> because we, so we look at things like Debian, for instance, and Debian, I, I, I don't want to beat on them, but they tend to be very much about uh, if there's a spectrum, they are on the, the end of the spectrum that is more toward the latter scenario of that's an upstream package. We're not touching it. We're not doing anything with it. Um, you know, we'll, when there's a new version of that library, we'll incorporate it into our next distro release on our side and that that's really their approach. Um, you know, we have, there's other dis distributions that do handle it obviously very differently, but it is, there is kind of that, that spectrum across the board. And I think, you know, from my perspective, if I, as a open source purist, yeah, I think they should be fixing it. Um, you know, I, I think at the point that the, the, the vulnerability comes to you and you're aware of it, if there's something that can be fixed, great, or at minimum, you should be working with whoever the maintainer is to get that fix implemented. I'm not saying that necessarily whoever's maintaining that distro needs to sit down and actually, uh, you know, make code changes. But if you're aware of this vulnerability and you're aware that it's in your distribution, you should be as much as anybody else working with the maintainers of that to remediate it or looking for a different library or something, you know, depending on what it is. I mean, obviously there's a lot of libraries that are, that's not going to happen with. Um, but, but I think there has to be a certain level of that kind of approach. It's kind of more of a traditional commercial software approach, but, it fits in with what we do in open source, where if I'm working, I mean, if I'm writing software, I don't care if I'm writing for an organization. I don't care if I'm writing it just because I'm making my own custom scheduling software for myself. If I'm writing some piece of software and I find a vulnerability in a package that's in my dependencies, am I just going to leave it there and, and you know, use that software as it is? No, I'm going to go back to that package maintainer and say, what can we do to fix this? I, if it's something easy, I might make the code change and, and submit the pull request. Right. Yeah. It's the shared responsibility, right? It's the shared responsibility hey, of the ecosystem. There's, that, yeah. there's those words again. Shared <laughs> responsibility. I like them. We're, we're back to DevOps. <laughs> Interesting. Now, uh, this kind of dovetails again, a lot of dovetailing, a little bit to containerization. And... Uh, Something that was in here was that around uh, over 30% of survey participants do not review Kubernetes manifests, which now these are used for those people who are unfamiliar with this. Manifests are used to create, modify, and delete Kubernetes resources. These can be deployments, pods, services, things like that. Um, um, Kubernetes has obviously kind of exploded uh, onto the scene in, in recent years. When it comes to kind of containers and orchestration um in the cloud what are you seeing there like what are the things that are kind of most interesting to you with security um i think the single thing that is also what i call the most interesting most boring chart in the report and that's if i if i back up to the container discussion and i think about docker images so last year we we took the top 10 uh, most popular official images in Docker Hub, and we scanned them all for vulnerabilities. And the results were not very good, um, or at least certainly not what some might expect. This year, we did the same thing, and nothing's changed. It's the exact same. I mean, the numbers are so similar for the most part. But the the storyline for me in all of this came as I was researching this, I came across a number of different discussions, but then I came across a blog that a fairly prominent member of the developer community, I'm not going to name names because I'm not about that, but um, you know, definitely a name that if I threw it out there, a lot of people listening to the podcast would, would recognize the name. 
who was talking about how to deploy uh, you know, a, a, a project into a container. And the, it got to the subject of picking a container image. And I just, clear as day, I can still picture it, it like right there in front of me on the screen where it said, go to Docker Hub, grab the official image. That should be secure for your purposes, whatever. And it, and it trailed on. And I was just like, and that I think is what happens. People think about these Docker official images and, and Docker does some scanning of them. And, you know, I mean, Docker Hub tries to do their part, but to, to think that just because you pulled an official image somehow absolves you of having to do normal security hygiene, if you will, it is definitely uh, not the right attitude to have. Um, you know, it, it put, it's an attitude that's going to put you at risk. Let's put it that way. Um, because yeah, I mean, as we see in the report, there's all of these base images come with large scale vulnerabilities in them. The, the, so, you know, the, the nice thing there is it, it's nice and it's not because this is a lot of what's old is new again. What you need to be looking at when you look at your image is I need to find that slimmest, smallest you know, most minimalistic image that I can leverage that will work or that maybe, maybe I can take that image. It's open source. Anyway, I can take that image. I can modify the Docker file. I can add a few other libraries and things to it that I need and make it suitable for my purposes. But, but grabbing a slim down image, because I mean, for the, for the vulnerabilities we looked at, you know, I just, I grabbed the latest. I just, you know, node latest, uh, HTTPD latest, a few others, just the latest version. Well, when you do that, you get pretty large package or, uh, you know, pretty large image files. I mean, it, they're not small images. They've got all these libraries in them. And when I go to like a slim image, in some cases, I mean, we saw like 90% reduction in vulnerabilities just wow. by using a slim image instead of using the full-blown image. And so, you know, and I say what's old is new again, because this is the same story we were talking about when we were talking about server hardening with physical steel, right? I mean, we were then, how do, how do I minimize what packages and I'm going to, or, you know, what options I'm going to install in this Linux distro or in this Microsoft uh, operating system or whatever to try to minimize my risk. And it's the same thing. The, the nice part though, is with containers, it's so much easier because it is all the finding code or it should be easier. I should say, I shouldn't say it is, um, because it's not, I mean, in practice, it's not, it should be easier. And I think as we get more tooling around that, more awareness of it, more capability, I, I will continue to see that improve. But, um, you know, so that's when I think about that, just that whole space of containers and Kubernetes and, and so forth, that's a big one. And it, it's the same with Kubernetes. I mean, you mentioned uh, the manifest and you, know, you think about your Helm charts. Are you looking at those before you launch, before you're going to deploy that cluster? What's in your Helm chart? Who's reviewing that? Who's making sure? Who's making sure that cluster is not configured to allow root access? to that particular node or, you know, I mean, all those, all these things that are, they're inherent to Kubernetes are easy things in theory to do, but if nobody's looking for them or no one understands them as best practice, they don't happen and we become exposed. It's, I mean, it's incredible levels of a complexity, isn't it? And it's like, it's layers of complexity that are interlinked. And it re reminds me a little bit of this wonderful story I saw a while back about this guy called, Earl Madman Muntz. Um, and the fact that his nickname was Madman is indicative of, I think, the <laughs> life he probably spent. But basically, he, he owned a, a TV factory. This is like back in the 40s or the 50s, something like that. And what he would do is he'd walk around the, the factory floor and they'd be making a set out of tubes and transistors or whatever. And he'd pull these bits and pieces out. Um, um, and then essentially when it stopped working he'd put the last thing he pulled out back in and um you know the set would work again and obviously they go through some checking and all the rest of it but the basic principle was what can we take out of this 
to, in that case, lower the costs of building these TV sets. And it sounds like what you're suggesting here, a bit, Alyssa, is, you know, what is the minimal minimum that you can put into your dependency chain and into your into your deployment or into whatever you're building, so you can essentially reduce the the attack surface uh, uh, or the risk, and you can still deliver what you're doing. And I guess there's a balance between that, but uh, b- between you know the one size fits all you know buffet approach to <laughs> to a, to a module. Um, and the, there's a balance between that and what you were talking about earlier on about you know the npm module that basically just want, checks if something's a string or not um yeah so it's, it's that that's the seems like that's a, a that's a really complicated challenge right for a lot of people to figure out oh i think so and it, it's going to continue to be and it, it always has been yeah you know and yeah. that's the thing it's i like everything in life i mean now i'm gonna like get all philosophical on you here but <laughs> go ahead everything in life is about balance right i mean there there are very few absolutes so to sit here and say yeah you should minimize you should use the absolute minimal container image ever you know possible well that requires some things that are difficult and can create some overhead a that means if you're really going to do that to the highest degree possible that means every microservice you deploy, every you know web service or every app that you deploy is going to have its own container image. Well, tr- there are problems from a security perspective with that too. Trying to maintain all those and be aware of vulnerabilities and all those, that can be problematic in and of itself. So there is definitely that balance. There's also the balance of to really minimize an image to that degree would require actually a similar approach to like you were discussing with the television. You would have to be so intrinsically aware of all of the inner workings of your software from the very beginning that the time to develop that software would be astronomical. You just, you, it's not realistic to think. And we've, we've put that kind of onus on developers before and it's not worked. And I think we understand that. Like, Yes, we need to understand how this thing works and we got to have design information and to some degree, whether, you know, however that comes about, something that we understand it, we know, hey, we can remove these things. But yeah, there also comes that point where how much time are you going to spend doing it? Are you going to take a container image, start removing libraries from it one by one by one until software breaks and then put that last library back in and say, okay, we're good. Right. Would that even be effective? Because you could take the first library out and that breaks everything. You say, oh, it needs everything that's in here. You put it back, you go. And then you find out later, there's 20 other libraries you never touched that aren't getting used by that software at all. So, you know, there's always going to be, as as far back as I can remember, my when I was a developer, the way I used to tease the security people is I was like, yeah, your information security utopia would be a room full of servers that have no network connections, the doors are hermetically sealed, <laughs> and you know, no one can get into that room and no one can connect to anything. Like yeah. it'd be great. It would be terribly, terribly secure. Yeah. But it's but a it would be completely useless. <laughs> you know, I mean right. you couldn't make use of that. And that's we have to always temper anything we think of from a security perspective. And that goes back to that empathy as well, is you know, not in not even thinking about these extreme cases, but just when we work with developers, I'm going to ask developers to do something. I need to understand what that downstream impact would be. And if it's going to be impactful to their daily jobs, the chances of them adopting that versus the chances of them trying to circumvent it, it it's not a good picture. Yeah. And so yeah. no, I agree. With I mean, you. this is, I preach this to my, my info security peers all the time. Like we have to be realistic. We don't get to dictate anything. If you're dictating, if you're telling them they need to do this, you're not doing it right. And you're ineffective because you will lose when things come toe to toe and a decision has to be made between the business and the security aspects. The business will win every single time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I could could not agree with you more. Um, Now, as I kind of bring this into the finish line a little bit, Let's zoom all the way out because, you know, you're a mm-hmm. security expert and I'd like to get your sense on this. So there's been a lot of chatter in the world in the last couple of years around um, the, you know, uh, the the 
the impact of cybersecurity on just on our nation, right? And just a broader mm-hmm. set of nations, whether it's government, state-sponsored hacking, the influence of, of, of hacking on elections and all of those different pieces. Uh, and whenever I meet anyone who works in security, I always ask them the same question because, you know, I, I read the news and I try to understand um, what's going on, but I'm so detached, I think, from the reality of, of what's happening that I just don't know what I'm talking about. And you do know what you're talking about. What's your take on all of this? Like, are you seeing in the work that you've done, not just in the report, but just more broadly, are you seeing an uptick in state-sponsored hacking? Do you think this is something that um, uh, governments or private institutions can 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 counter, that they can play a role in? Do you, do you feel like, I mean, I, this is a massive question, just what's your kind of, <laughs> you know, just pulse on all this stuff? Uh, and yeah. feel, feel free to dig in and say, you know what, Jono, this all sucks and it's not going to get better. We'll be sad for a bit, <laughs> but I'd understand if you said that. It doesn't have to be a positive message. I'm just curious to get your take on it. Yeah. So first of all, I think there's definitely the state sponsored side of, it, I think for sure there has been, I mean, it, you, you talk to security vendors, of course, they're going to tell you it is because that that's part of how they make their money. But I think the reality is we do see this and we see it from all aspects of it. Um, you know, I had a conversation actually last year with uh, one of the former directors of the CIA about this exact topic. So it, it's, it's kind of timely that, or well, at least it's still fresh in my head. I mean, I guess it was a year old, but just the, the degree to which we, we've heard some of the stories about like commoditized hacking, where there are marketplaces for these people to go to. If, if I want to attack um, you know, I'm going to attack this type of system. I know I need an expert in this and I can go pay somebody you know, a few thousand pounds or whatever. And they're going to, uh, you know, create this. Um, we're seeing that now at a higher degree with like things like Emotet, where you've got this very effective, uh, malware that now in and of itself is just being commoditized as a malware delivery channel. And people are using Emotet in order to launch their own malware distributions because it takes care of so much of the hard stuff for them as far as just redistribution and spread and so forth. So it, that I think we're going to continue to see and it we're going to see it for, I mean, I, I honestly don't think it's getting going to get better anytime soon. Um, I think we're getting better with our techniques, but at the same time, until you know when it's going to get better is when technology stops evolving which, which is never going to happen i was gonna say probably not going to happen <laughs> um, and that's and that's the thing people are like well you know wh- when do we get that when do we hit that point where you're not going to have a job anymore i'm like you're never going to get there because you're going to keep creating new technology that new technology is going to have to be secured every new piece of technology you create comes with its own threat model its own risks and so it, it, and I don't say that to be like hopeless or to be hyperbolic. It's just, it's the reality that our focus can't be on securing all the things in all the ways. It has to be, how do we continue to get better? It's constantly going to be a back and forth. I don't know any society on this planet that has solved the problem of crime. So this being just, you know, cyber attack just being another form of crime it's unrealistic to think that we haven't been able to solve it anywhere else but somehow we're going to solve it here in this ever evolving space of technology it, it there's, there's no realism there at all i mean how long have we had automobiles people right. still steal cars <laughs> right we exactly. haven't secured cars to where they can't get stolen yet so yeah no, I, I agree. And to sound like a giant human cliche, it is not a sprint, it is a marathon. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> hey, Alyssa, this was really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I just love the the level of depth that you've dug into. I, I know like a lot of people who listen to this podcast, like I said, there are many different groups of people, and I think all of them will, will have been really interested in this. Um, uh, tell us a little bit more about, about how people can find the report and get in touch with you and all that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. To find the report real easy, just go to sneak.io. So that's S-N-Y-K.io. And uh, you'll see it's right there on the front page. Um, You can download it as a PDF. Yes, we do ask for your email address. I promise you we won't spam you a ton. 
um, you'll, <laughs> you'll get a message or two from us, but you can yeah. quickly unsubscribe. It's a fetch um, rate. You know, I mean, we, we appreciate you sharing that information with us too, because it helps us continue to produce reports like this. Right. Um, but yeah, so definitely, uh, you know, if you're looking for the report, if you're digging into the report or you've listened to this podcast and you just got a question for me, hit me up on social media. Yep. Um, I'm sure you'll probably have it somewhere out there, but for folks yep. uh, who are looking to find me, Twitter is the easiest way. It's just Alyssa M underscore infosec. So that's A-L-Y-S-S-A-M underscore I-N-F-O-S-E-C. It is probably Perfect. the lamest hacker <laughs> handle on Twitter. <laughs> But, you know, I made it it's in a hurry good. when I wasn't really serious about Twitter. And then suddenly I got serious about Twitter. And, <laughs> you know, that's what everybody knows me as now. So that's, yeah. That, it that's could be worse. It could be like Cheez-Its che- Monster 3665 or something like that with a lot of YouTubers. <laughs> you know, they pick their thing. Then that becomes I their mean, brand. <laughs> I mean, I live in Wisconsin, so something cheese related might have been good. <laughs> might, might, okay. Yeah, well, I'll put I'll put those details into the show notes, and uh, yeah, this is awesome. Thanks, Alyssa, and, and keep up the amazing work. It's like people like yourself are keeping us all safe and secure. So thank you, for, and thanks for coming on. I appreciate it, and likewise, thank you for having me.